Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I am so pleased with this year's focus theme, That Was Then, This Is Now, Design Your Own Next Chapter. While I have searched out several guests specifically for that theme, it's also attracting guests who speak to it too. Today's guest is no exception. I chatted with Cherie in December, and here we are starting February, looking at new starts, maybe new choices, and certainly tax time is right around the corner. Estate planning and asset protection are subjects we need to review regularly. Cherie's focus is business, and we talk about that, and in the way conversations go, one subject leads to another, and we discussed so many facets of estate planning and families that could well trigger a thought for everyone listening, with or without a business. A couple of notes. Cherie mentions W-2 income. That's the same as T-4 income in Canada. For all other nationals, it's income earned from an employer who makes the necessary deductions and donations required by the Federal Revenue Agency. Also, if you're seriously thinking about registering an LLC or incorporating a business, a new year is a really good time to do that. I learned so much from Cherie. I hope you do too. Listen now. Today we get to discuss a subject that too many people don't want to talk about, dying. We're all going to do it, that's a given. But what happens to your property, your heirs, your business after you take your last breath? My guest today has a painful, deeply personal story and also some really good advice on how to protect that property, the heirs, and your business after you die. A lot of our conversation will be around business ownership and asset protection. Stay with us even if you don't have a business because A, some of our discussion may trigger a thought you should have considered in your personal planning and B, you don't know what the future holds. We boomers are doing all sorts of interesting things after we give up the nine to five. You don't know what's going on in the future. Oftentimes we clarify that my guest isn't a doctor but or isn't an attorney, but. Today, my guest is an attorney. The only but I'll add is that Cherie is an American. Some processes might be different in another country, but her advice stands. Make sure your estate planning is thorough, updated, and legally airtight wherever you live. Cherie Prince, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Agnes. Looking forward to this. Now, I did some pretty blatant foreshadowing uh, that your story starts with a personal or on a personal note. Do you mind sharing what happened to your grandparents' farm? Sure. And I'll even take you back a little further. I landed on my grandparents' farm because my mother passed away when I was 16. And my earliest memories of my mom are of her being sick. So fast forward, she's 36 years old. She's been in a nursing home for three years. And she passes away and leaves my brother and I with family. So there was always a lot of love in my grandparents on my grandparents' farm. But at the same time, you know, you miss your mom. And so we had love. We, you know, played in the fields. We had crops that we picked every summer. And that was great. But when I got a little older in my 20s, my grandparents passed away. And they did not have a will or a trust. They really did not have a plan at all as to what happens to their property. So I am in the States, I'm in Mississippi. And here, if you pass away without a will or a trust, the government has a plan for your property. There's no question about where it goes. And so my grandparents' property passed by operation of law to their children. So my brother and I got my mother's share of the property. Well, some family members had different thoughts about that. So it really became a rift in our family about my grandparents' assets. And that was part of the reason I decided to go on and go to law school and become an attorney. You know, I think just about everybody probably in our listening audience knows of that family or more perhaps that are ripped apart by exactly that, like just either poor planning or no planning. Tell us the journey you took then to to become the person you are today and doing what you're doing today. Sure. So that was my first run in with, hey, I need to be doing something different. I didn't go to law school right away. My grandparents passed away in my 20s. And I started a couple of businesses. My first business was a flop. Um, Had a partnership. 
started with a handshake and that business failed terribly. Um, I went on to have a couple of other businesses and around 08, there was the, the huge mortgage debacle. At that time, I was a mortgage broker. And so, you know, things were great until they weren't. I actually went an entire year and did not make a dime, lost everything and had to start over. So as a child, I used to watch Matlock and Perry Mason. And those are just two shows that came on TV about attorneys and all their cases. And I just I loved it. So I decided that I was going to revive that childhood dream and become an attorney. And once I did, I started helping entrepreneurs with their estate plan and their business plan, because those are two of the biggest things in my life that were early failures. And had someone actually helped me with those things, I think I could have been a little bit successful, you know, more successful earlier in my career. In hindsight, it was a setback, but it was also a setup because I don't think that I'd be this happy this fulfilled, have this time freedom, or have this wonderful career had those things not happened to me. I, I find it sort of very commendable that, I mean, boy, you had one tragedy after another, and yet you just went, okay, uh, ne next, what's next? You know, you must have been on plan EFRG by the time you finally decided to become an attorney. Well, the thing with my mother passing, my brother is two years younger than me. Um, and I just always felt like, even though he'll tell you that he absolutely did not need it, I had to take care of him or I had to have a plan for my brother. And once I became a mother, I had that same motivation about my children. By the time 08 came and I lost everything, literally had to start over, lost my business. I had rental property. I lost houses. I lost everything. I had to go live with my brother for a year. And so I was just determined that I would never be in that situation again. And so I look back. And I took the time that I was in law school to learn, to grow, to put together a plan. And it all starts with educating yourself and just making a decision about having a plan going forward for the future. And so it's, you know, there are still peaks and valleys in business cycles, but I just, I love the fact that I can honestly say I've been in the valley. So I know what it's like to go there. And if I see shifts in my business, I know how to combat those. And I love to sharing those tips with other people. I love it when you can look at a process, a person's life and say, the universe had a plan. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And what a great example you're setting for your own kids now then, just to uh, persevere and find a path and if you get knocked down, get up and move on to the next path. So that's great. Can we start with a few definitions? Estate planning sounds like it's for people with just that an estate you know and you think about big property and lots of money and that sort of thing what exactly is estate planning so estate planning is just the process that you have for a destination for anything that you own after you expire we all have an expiration date and we don't know when that is you know who knew at 36 that my mother would need long-term care insurance that she would need a life insurance policy or a designation of guardian for her minor children. So it sounds really fancy, but it's just a, it's just a plan. Whatever your plan is, you may only own a car in a house. What is your plan for that car in that house? Maybe the house is paid for or it's a family home and you just have furniture or you have jewelry. What is your plan for that? And so that's all an estate plan is. Well, and I think just as you mentioned with your grandparents' property, you know, if whoever left is left disagrees with another person, that's just a cat amongst the pigeons. It, it can really go downhill from there. So, Oh my gosh. Yes. And the thing about the farm, it's like, it was a real farm. We had cows, they had chickens, they had hogs, tractors, big trucks. And so you have certain family members who feel entitled, even though the, the, the ownership is joint you know, it's joint ownership. So no one person in the family owned it, but you just never know how people will react until there's, you know, property or money or assets on the table. And so that was really disheartening, but I'm glad I went through it early in life because now there aren't a lot of things that surprise me when clients come in and they say, you know, this happened in my family, you know, I'm like, okay, check. I know how to deal with this. So. Right. Right. And, and perhaps you can use your own life experience as emphasis for your clients of like this, you don't want this to happen after you, after you die. Exactly. Almost every plan that I work with people on, I approach it from the standpoint of litigation. 
not just because I'm an attorney, but you have to begin with the end in mind. So when you're looking at on a personal side, your estate plan, what does that look like on the day that I'm no longer here? What does that look like for my family? On the business side, you look at an exit and an exit is not always when you sell your business. You know, hopefully you will grow up and build a business to scale and you can sell it. But an exit also could look like a bankruptcy. It could look like a reorganization. If you have a partnership, it could be the dissolution of a partnership. If you are married and your partners, it could be the dissolution of a marriage. And if you are a sole proprietor, you know, that means that you don't have a legal structure when you pass on, the business passes on with you. So you have to just kind of approach the individual side and the business side in terms of an exit and where you would like to be. I'm going to get into those nitty gritties shortly. Just one more definition. Um, and I think it's maybe self-explanatory, but I just want to go there. What exactly qualify as assets? Anything that you own. And I have, if you don't mind me sharing, I have an exercise that I do with people when I start working with them because no matter where you are, where you live, you have to understand assets. Before you can talk about protecting something, you have to know what it is and understand what it is. So this is what I call the three eyes. First, you have to identify all of your assets. You'd be amazed at how we just buy stuff and accumulate stuff. We put it in storage or we put it you know, out of sight and we don't use it year round. It may be seasonal, but we do not have a clear list of the things that we own. So first, we identify what we own. Then we inventory it. That's the second eye, inventory. And we just put two columns. This is something really simple. You don't need an accountant. This is something you can do with a sheet of paper at your kitchen table. You have a personal column and you have a business column. And so it qualifies for personal if it's titled in your personal name and you purchased it with personal funds. It's business if you purchased it with business funds or it's titled in your business name. Now, the problem comes in when you are commingling your assets, you may have a vehicle that you purchased with your personal credit that you're using in the business because maybe you have an established business credit and you can get a better rate with your personal credit score. So what happens if you have a, an accident in that vehicle and somebody sues you? Well, they're not suing the business. They're reaching into your personal pockets because that is the name that the vehicle is titled in. So the third I is improving the classification of your assets. We look at those two columns. We see if there's any commingling or if you're using them, you know, for business and personal. And we show you how to separate those to help put a moat around your business and personal assets. When, when we connected, I explained to you that what you do, I have no concept of. And just even like some of that explanation right there, it was like, oh, the light was coming on, the light was coming on. So that that's great. I do want to ask you one more question. What are, you talked about your mom and, and never thinking about some of the plans that could have been in place. Um, what are the basic legal forms or legal planning that everyone should have in terms of estate planning with or without a business? Yes, that's so good. So there are different types of basic plans. You may have what's called a will-centered estate plan, which is your last will and testament, or you may have a plan that starts with a with a trust. And so I generally like to look at it like a house. So the roof of your plan is your will or your trust, and it kind of provides a roadmap for what you're going to do going forward. But that's going to be the option, your will or your trust. Now, with a trust, there is what's called a pour-over will that kind of dumps everything into the trust when you pass away. There's an option with your will when you pass away that you can actually create a trust. So that's really a personal preference, but that is generally where everyone starts because we talk about asset protection, but we're also talk about, talking about legacy planning. That's how we build our moat. So the will of the trust is at the very top and then your assets are underneath. If they're personal assets, they could possibly be held in a land trust or a series of entities, but the basic documents you need to support your will or your trust, one, you're going to need a living will. And it's called different things in different places, but it's just a document that says that, hey, I want to be put on a feeding tube or I don't want a feeding tube. You know, if I stop breathing on my own, I want to be put on a ventilator or I don't. And the living will is coupled with a healthcare directive or a healthcare proxy. 
And so that says, I'm going to name Jane Doe or John Doe to make medical decisions for me. Now, the tricky thing about this is the living will says in big strokes what you would like to happen for you if you need medical care and you can't make the decision on your own. But the healthcare directive is another document that appoints a person to do something that's very similar. Well, from time to time, those two documents may bump heads. And what happens then? Who makes the final decision? Well, in your living will, you designate who makes the final decision. And usually I advise people that because you are in your sound mind and you know what you want at the time that you're drafting the documents, that your living will controls what happens if there is a conflict. We run into this a couple of times when you may have a spouse or a partner and they do not want to take you off life support because they want to come visit you every day, hold your hand, say everything's going to be great, but you do not want to be a vegetable. So it's your decision that you do not want to be kept on life support or you don't want a feeding tube. So that's something that you would put in your living will. Those are two base documents while you're alive. Another document is a HIPAA form. And what that does, it gives certain individuals the authorization to get your medical records. Now, the question is, why would you need my medical records if I'm still alive? Well, it does not expire when you die. It can go beyond death. But what if you are in an accident and you're unconscious and we may have to file a lawsuit because someone caused your condition? Well, this will authorize certain people to actually get those medical records, not make decisions, but just to get those medical records. And those are documents while you're alive, medical documents. Other documents you may need a financial power of attorney. And what that does, it allows individuals that you designate either at the same time or in succession to make financial decisions about you, to manage your homestead on your house, your bank accounts, your safety deposit boxes, to invest for you, any sort of financial decision. And it's separate from your healthcare directive. They do similar things, but it is totally separate from healthcare. So those are the documents that I recommend that everyone have, regardless. And usually, if you are putting together a plan, the practitioner that you're using is going to prepare those documents for you in addition to your will or your trust. It's always so interesting, cool to talk to a professional because you see the big picture. Whereas for the average layman, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a will and that's all I need. Whereas, as you say, if you're in a car accident, you're in a coma or something like, like what happens then? Um, the other thing I want to point out is you mentioned of sound mind. And that's another reason to do it sooner than later, because I know in Canada here, if you have a diagnosis of dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever, you are no longer legally allowed to sign or, or you put it this way. Your signature is no longer legally valid on important documents. And that is so important because those types of diagnoses, you do not know when they're coming. You have no idea. So I hear a lot when people, you know, come to speak to me about probating their parents' estate or a spouse's estate. They'll say, well, he told me he would like for me to have this, but there's nothing in writing. And, you know, they'll be like, well, the family said they'll agree to it. But what happens when someone changes their mind? You just want your wishes to be observed in the event that you were, you know, incapacitated or no longer with us. So just keep in mind, your plan includes documents while you're alive and also documents, testament, testamentary documents once you passed on. Right, right. Your expertise and your, your usual clientele are business oriented. Before we go too far down that path, is there a difference between, say, a mom and pop business and a larger company with, say, dozens of employees? Fundamentally, no, because I believe that every business has a certain structure. One thing that I do, if I'm starting out, and I'm going to compare and contrast an established business versus a mom and pop. If I'm starting out with a new business, a startup, whether it's a mom and pop or a business that's projected to be larger and you know maybe publicly traded, you have so many considerations, but you have several things in common. And we start out with a decision tree. The first question I ask, are you an e-com business or a brick and mortar business? And the reason I ask is because every decision after that, they're different. Because the way that you handle e-com in terms of your cash handling and management policy and other things is totally different 
than a brick and mortar business. Also, the, li the liability on those are, are different as well. My next question is, are you a public facing business? Which means like, for instance, if you're a company that relies on a, a person's image, like Kim Kardashian is very popular in certain circles. And when Kim promotes stuff, people buy it. So if you, you know, depend on brand ambassadors and things like that, that's a little bit different. Or do you require anonymity? There are some people that, you know, you don't want the public to know that you have an ownership stake in certain businesses. So that's going to change the way that I advise you as well. And so coming back down to that third layer, we're talking about now the actual service offering or the products that you sell. So this is where we're talking about your operations. So we'll say that John Doe makes widgets and John Doe is the best widget maker in all, you know, of the county. Can't beat him making widgets. Well, there's certain liability with making widgets. And so we address that with insurance, with standard operating procedures and key performance indicators. And so those things are standard regardless of the type of business that you have. Normally, most of my clients are people that do not have strong KPIs or standard operating procedures and who generally have not reached the $5 million per year in annual revenue mark. Because once you kind of get beyond that and you have stuff set in place, you may not need an asset protection coach. You generally will have those people and they're functioning in your business. Ooh. <laughs> I'm getting more and more impressed with what you do. On your website, you say you teach entrepreneurs how to merge their business plan with their estate plan to create a moat around their assets. Now, you'd mentioned sitting at the kitchen table and your, your three eyes. Is that sort of part of that? Because I, I didn't quite understand about yes. the moat. And, things and like all that. a moat is, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie Shrek, but and I can't remember which one it is. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. But like there's one part of the movie where they're approaching the castle and, you know, you have to let the bridge down and there's water all around the castle. Well, the water and whatever alligators or sharks or whatever's in the water, that's the moat that's protecting the castle. So what I teach people how to do is I teach you how to take the things that you already have and put other things with them to protect your money on the personal side and also to protect you from internal and external threats on the business side. And so a lot of people think about, okay, threats to my business, maybe lawsuits, somebody may walk in and slip and fall. You know, I may have a partner that I disagree with and they sue for half the company. Well, what about internal threats? Because if you have employees, you may have workers' comp claims. You may have shrinkage or theft. I don't like to say theft, so I say shrinkage. You may have shrinkage. You know, if you don't have a good inventory system, depending on the type of product you have, you may have spoilage. And another internal threat to your company is your company culture. If you are not fostering a good company culture, then that will show in your customer service and the company morale. And so another threat to your business is high turnover. So if you are constantly spending money to acquire new talent and onboard new talent, it takes you longer to make money. And when you make it, it's kind of seeping out the door. So there are just a combination of things that I do, but I don't want you to think that I do them alone. I actually work with your team. So Agnes, you're going to have to ask me, what is a team? So I can tell you. Uh, Cherie, what, what, what do you okay. say as a team? <laughs> we work, we so work well, well together. together. <laughs> so this is the thing. And a lot of people do not realize it. If you are in business, you already have someone that you're paying insurance premiums to. So your insurance agent is part of your team. You already should have a bank account and a banking relationship. Your banker is part of your team. Some people may not have a financial advisor and a financial advisor can come in many different forms or you can have a financial coach, but whoever your financial partner is, if you have separate investments, they are part of your team. Everybody who's of age and working should have someone who is minimally a tax preparer, someone who takes your financial information from the previous year and they prepare a report to turn in so you can pay your fair share of taxes. Now, what a lot of people don't know and or understand is that you also need a tax planner. So what's the difference between a tax planner and a tax preparer? A tax preparer is looking in the rearview window like, OK, this is what you did last year. I'm going to put it together and you just cut a check 
for your taxes. But a tax planner is someone who works with you looking at the, the front windshield. Like this is, you know, it's 2024 coming up. You might want to make a, this purchase in this month. Well, the government has authorized this tax credit or this incentive for you to do X, Y, and Z. Or, hey, we're approaching the third quarter of the year. Right now, this is your tax liability. You may want to consider doing X, Y, and Z to reduce your, your tax liability. Or this is a great time for some sort of charitable giving. That is a tax planner. It does not have to be the same person, but it could be. But you definitely need to know these people. And guess what else? They need to know each other. I tell folks, treat it like an annual wellness visit. You know, you need for all these people, first you have to authorize them to talk to each other about your business. But at least once a year, you guys need to have a round table. And with Zoom, it is so easy. And they need to be putting together a plan on how to work with you in your business, on your business for the next calendar year. And really quarterly is, it, is you know, recommended. But if you can do it at least annually, that's your asset protection team. It's not really costing you more because in some form or fashion, you're already compensating these individual individuals. Some of them are fee-based, so they may not receive any money until they perform services for you, or they may receive commissions on the type of work that you do with them. So don't think about it as an expense. Look at it as an investment for your business. I'm thinking that I just might have to produce this episode twice, and the second time it's going to be called job descriptions you never realized existed because <laughs> you're talking about some of those people and I'm going like I yeah, never like, thought of that it's not a new Genius. thing some people when they think about asset protection they think about oh I'm gonna have to spend all this money no you just have to get organized because think about it if you are sitting at your kitchen table and just organizing your assets it's just costing you time if you are putting the together the people who are already working in your life then really you're cutting back on some time because now you're not having single meetings with them. You're getting in a group, you're giving out directives and they are executing those things because it benefits the both of you. And so you're just finding a way to be more efficient. I'm going completely out in left field here, but I'm just thinking if you go to round table with these professionals, professionals who are helping you, at what point in time do you control them and they control Oh, now you? you are always in control. But the thing about control, you have to share some of it. And this is what you have to understand. Before you even do that, and this is something that sometimes people, and I, you know, I miss it sometimes when I'm having these talks, you have to know what to ask. Because some of us, if we're new to business, and you know, we may, we may just be a great widget maker. We may not know what we need from an attorney, or we may not know the type of insurance we need. So we ask them to advise us. But part of what I do as an asset protection coach, I educate you on the types of things you need. I educate you on mindset, on what to think about. So I'll give you an example. Just like a, a tax planner would advise you on when to purchase certain things, I help you think about how that works with your overall asset protection plan. So, okay, I'm going to go and buy a second home. And the second home is going to be in a different state. Okay. How does that fit into my current estate plan? What are the tax implications? What time of the year should I purchase it based on what the Fed rate has done in terms of interest rates? And so it's just really a mindset shift on how you do things. And when you talk about the control portion, you have to know what you need. You don't have to be the expert, but you have to be brave enough to go and get the basic understanding. So when you ask the expert questions, you're clear that the response is what you need and not something that benefits them. So it's shared control, I would say, but you do have to equip yourself with a baseline of knowledge about what's needed for you because asset protection planning is not cookie cutter. It is so individual, but it also does not have to be complex. You know, I gave up a lot of control to my team, even though I do this for other people, because I recognize and I value the other skill sets that are at the table. Two thoughts come to mind uh, is, is, first of all, I am acquainted with a woman here in Canada who is an American citizen. She wants to sell her Canadian home. You're just talking about having homes in other places. And she now is panicking because she will need to pay capital gains to the American government 
when she sells her home in Canada. And and the capital gains rate is is really quite high. So uh, yeah, in terms of seeing the big picture is is so important. And I get and pre-planning, you know, like if if you buy that home over there, what happens, you know, in the long term. The other thought is, you know, when I said like who controls who is you like say, you know, people are listening to you and they go like, oh yeah, Sheree is just amazing and I'm gonna hire Sheree. But like, I don't have a clue how to find, you know, the, the tax planner, the tax preparer, whatever, all that stuff. Do you ever recommend the other professionals? Because I should think it's really hard. You know, you want your team to be really sound and, and helping you all the way. But sometimes, you know, things go south with a certain person. Sometimes. And so what generally happens is because I work with people all over the world and I really try to equip you with the questions to ask people in your area. So you're in Canada. The law is different than it is in the United States. There may be some similarities, but if I can equip you with the types of questions to ask a tax preparer in Canada, someone who's more familiar with that law and what they're doing, I feel that they may be a more, more of a benefit to you. Now, I do have people that I recommend, and I usually give three recommendations, and I still give you questions to ask them to make sure that you vibe because I'm really big on relationships. If I'm going to be working with you, you're going to be handling my personal affairs or my business. I need someone that I can talk to and someone who understands me and my business. So I do recommend people, but I do like for people to find folks that are local, that understand the local customs and the law as well. And if you do have somebody that you're currently working with, don't throw those people away. Let's see if we can bring them in and just make sure they're a good fit for your team and have them continue working with you. Okay. Going back now to the fact that, you know, like I'm learning so much just by talking to you, but I, I still came into this not knowing anything. I basically took some of your talking points off Podmatch, and I'm thinking that you've touched on a lot of this. So I think I'm going to change it from you know, like what advice to, is there more advice that you would give? The first thing, the first point was, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who may not realize the critical importance of asset protection in their business planning? Now, you've you've gone over quite a bit of that. Yes. Is there anything else? There is this thing called the cost of inaction. Some of us think that if we don't do anything, that we're going to, you know, just stay status quo. So the example that I like to share is like, maybe your business, it's grossing, um, $100,000 a year. You know, you have a lawn care business, your gross is $100,000 a year. Now, if you were able to go in and implement some of these asset protection strategies, I do not guarantee that you make money, but I will guarantee that a byproduct of doing this, you do have tax savings. Some people do make money because they're more efficient, but my goal is to make sure your assets are protected. So let's say you start out with $100,000. Now you've hired an asset protection coach. Doesn't have to be me, but someone who is familiar with the concepts and takes you through a process. Now your annual revenue is $500,000. You've increased by $400,000 just by becoming more efficient, recognizing tax savings. You've put a moat around your assets and protected those, and you have an estate plan. So you've increased $400,000. So now let's go back to the original question. Are you at the status quo? No, the cost of your inaction with not having a plan may cost you as much as $400,000 a year. So you are not the status quo. And that's what I share with entrepreneurs. Wow, the lights just keep on coming on here. It's great. Next point. In your experience, what are some of the most effective proactive measures entrepreneurs can take to safeguard their assets and legacy? You've just gone over a whole yeah, bunch of big, that. The biggest thing we... is not commingling your assets. So if you don't do anything else but what you've been doing, making sure you don't commingle, that's number one. Staying adequately funded. A lot of businesses start out because you have somebody who has a skill or a service they're offering, or a product that's great, but they don't have the funding to sustain operations over time. So making sure that, you know, you're adequately funded. And third, making sure that if you're trying to scale your business, that before you even start making money, you start hiring people to help you build and scale your business. Because when the boom hits, you want to make sure that you're able to fulfill customer expectations. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm really enjoying this. What are some common mistakes or oversights that entrepreneurs make when it comes to asset protection and how can they be avoided? I love the fact that as I'm I'm reading these questions to you now, it's like, okay, you said this, this, and this. Uh, but again, is there anything else that we didn't? Uh, I think a major thing is not considering your significant other. So, you know, now there are people that are in long-term relationships who may not choose to become married. They may be partners for years and years, or they may have commingled personal assets and they're unmarried. So when you are starting a business, I tell folks, everything that you do, make an agreement, some sort of contract that memorializes who owns what, what the investment was, was it an investment or was it a buy-in? Because even after you get married, I tell I tell people that if you don't have a prenup, consider a postnup. Because if you are beginning with the end in mind, you are the most generous when you're early in your relationship. But by the time things go sour, you may be looking at years of prolonged litigation. So the moral of the story is married or unmarried, long-term partnership, everything you do in a business, memorialize it with a writing or a written agreement to just cut down on what could happen down the road. It's just like insurance. You don't need it until you need it. So some people may be offended that, hey, we've been married 15 years and we have this business, but now you want a postnup. It's not that I'm going anywhere, but we just have to be clear that whatever we're doing in business, in the event that the business is dissolved, we go bankrupt or we separate and divorce, there's a clear understanding about what happens to the business and also the investment that we put in. I wonder too, if in that case where it's you've been married for a while and you say to your spouse partner Let, let's do the post nup and they go like oh. what are you talking about like are you going to divorce me or something it, it could be no like we don't know what's going to happen two years up the road the spouse might find somebody you know so it protects them as well in terms of whatever well, Agnes whatever I found happens. a really nice way to ask for a post nup so you don't say you never use the word post nup you know, like, hey, babe, let's look at our, you know, our state plan. It may be time for your annual checkup. And so you just can refer to it as an asset protection agreement. Like, hey, we may need to consider an asset protection agreement, you know, in the event of, and you can list incapacity because that is a real thing. What happens, you know, you're working in a business with your spouse and they become incapacitated. Well, they're still here. They may need long-term care. And what's really big now, you have blended families. So I may have come into a marriage and we both had, you know, children coming in. We may have children together. What happens if you pass away, even with a will or a trust, and we have other business interests, and I want to continue to run the business a certain way? Well, in your will or trust, you may leave ownership to some of your children or our children or friends or other partners, but now there are other issues to consider because we're married. And so that just takes a, a little different turn. So don't call it a post-nup, call it an asset protection agreement. And I think that'll go over a lot smoother. We've well, said something too there about being incapacitated because you, you don't know when mm -hmm. you're going to get hit by the bus. If, if you don't have some of these things in place and so your, your business partners as well as life partners, if one person suddenly is incapacitated, does that change what can happen to the business? Because now you only have one partner able to sign on things, whereas before, and I'm just talking out of the blue here now, because I obviously don't know what I'm talking about, but you, whereas maybe both of you would sign for something as partners, now one person can't sign because they're incapacitated. Is that the kind of thing okay. that is covered? So most businesses in the States are like LLCs or corporations. And if you are an LLC, you should have an operating agreement that outlines most of this. If you are a corporation, you should have bylaws that outlines most of this. But if you are a married couple and you have like, you know, some married couples have one pot of money that everything comes from. So you have this one pot of money. What if you have other partners? And so the reason you want to have an asset protection agreement between you and your spouse is to protect you 
So the asset protection agreement is something that's separate from the actual agreement between all the partners, because we're talking more specifically about your relationship with your significant other and any commingled assets you have. So it's like a level below the actual agreement that forms the company, the LLC or the corporation. And I guess I'll give you I'll give you another example. So say, for instance, you have someone who had W-2 income and decided, hey, I no longer want to be an employee. I would like to open my own company. So they take all of their retirement money and they put it into this new business venture. OK, that person may be married. The other person may continue to work, you know, for someone else as a W-2 employee um, just to keep a you know continuity of income in the home. And they may also work in the business part time. So what happens, you know, now that I've taken all of my retirement out and put it into this, I'm incapacitated. We may or may not have other partners. What happens to my initial investment? So it's like it's different. It's belt and suspenders for your business. But it's a clear line about your assets in your relationship with this person, how those assets support the company. Have you, in your experience, um, actually had, and I'm thinking now like of a mom and pop business where, you know, the couple's just, they've, they've been together in life, they've got this little small business, and they just always think that it's just the two of them and everything's hunky-dory and you know, for, for whatever reasons, things are no longer hunky-dory, whether it's, you know, an accident, a death or whatever, but they just don't have a lot of this in all, place. All the time. And this, this story is similar. This family had a family business. So you had a mom, husband, and three children. Well, the mother was the face of the company. She basically did everything and pretty much cut everybody a check. Nobody really worked in the business but her. She passed away. No bad at the bank, knew the rest of the family. They weren't, you know, used to seeing them come to the bank. They were not on any legal documents. There was not a single document that spelled out who owned the company, even though it's a small town and people pretty much knew that the family owned the company, but there was nothing in writing. And so in this case, we had to go and put together organizational documents, minute meetings and things like that just so the bank would release the fund to the family because they only knew the mom and she was the only person on the account. And depending on how your business structures are set up, your estate may or may not be able to unilaterally make those changes. So that was an example where there were just no formalities. Mom and dad were not at odds, but you had one spouse to pass away and other family members in this family business, and they didn't quite have it together. And literally all their assets were frozen because the world only knew mom to be the owner or manager of that business. Well, sometimes too, I wonder if the it's a family business, but basically everything is mom's business. And so when she passes away, nobody else really knows what to do, even just about the business, let alone all the legalities and the money and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so or like dad was the widget maker and the kids were never interested in widgets. So what happens now? It just basically. And you know collapses. what? That. Oh, my gosh. That leads me to another conversation. You have to talk to somebody about this stuff. Some people are afraid to talk about life insurance because if I talk about it, I'm going to die. Well, no, you're not going to die. But you need to have these conversations, if not with family, with a trusted friend or advisor. And you need to have a mechanism for informing your family about your plans in the event that you're incapacitated or, you know, it's time for you to go into the pearly gates. Though, you know, somebody needs to know about your plan and how to execute it. It's interesting you say that because I can remember and it's one of those feelings that's sort of implanted, imprinted in my brain is after our first child was born, my former husband and I did all that stuff. We did the will, we did the life insurance. And I remember when the, the fella left thinking, okay, I can die now. And it wasn't, it was sort of, I chuckled at that feeling, but then I went, oh, what I'm really feeling here is just the relief that if I were to die, all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And it was such a sense of relief to yeah, have it. Because done. life insurance is, is really, that's really not the name they should give it. It's not insurance on your life. It's income replacement in the event of your passing so that your family is cared for. 
So look at it like that, that, you know, I'm not leaving Agnes a million dollars to go spend with her new boyfriend when I'm gone. I'm leaving her something. Yeah, I'm leaving her something for the kids and for her to be comfortable because I'm not there anymore, you know, to support her financially, to be there emotionally for her is income replacement. And I find that, you know, I'm sure things are similar enough in the States, Canada, and a lot of other countries is that a lot of people don't understand that. They think, oh, I've got like $100,000, which doesn't go anywhere these days, but $100,000 life insurance policy, that'll be great. Well, no, because when the 100000 runs out, which it does really quickly, is they're back to square one with no supplemental income, no other person to help out with all the, the family and the kid expenses and stuff like that. So yeah, so important to, to think of it in terms of how much do I need to re, like to take the interest or whatever it is, the investment money, and be able to live the same way we're living now, at least um, without touching the, the And one thing too, that we didn't really touch on, but I really like to just put that in the back, of, put this in the back of someone's mind. If you decide that you want to start a business and you may be working now and you have W-2 income, say your annual income, your annual gross income is $50,000. Well, the amount that you need to make to maintain the same standard of living as an entrepreneur is not $50,000 because your employer is probably paying French. You have health insurance. They may be paying life insurance. They may have a per diem for, you know, mileage. If you're traveling on their behalf, they may have a matching retirement that you can do. So when you're thinking about striking out on your own and starting a business, you know, and you may be like, Sheree, what does this have to do with asset protection? Well, it goes back to being underfunded because we think that all I was making at my job is 50,000. So all I need to make in my, in my new business is 50. Well, no. So you have to replace all those things that your employer um, was doing for you. And now you have this overhead, you know, you have a light bill at your house, a light bill at the office, and you just have two sets of bills. So planning and getting with your team very early, even before you switch the lights on at your new building, get an asset protection plan. Well, you were talking about like the benefits and the employer, what the employer might pay when you've got a job. Um, <laughs> the price of a root canal in Canada right now is ridiculous. I, I think that's everywhere. It's ridiculous, but okay. <laughs> just, you know, dental and all that sort of stuff. So can you give us a real life case? Uh, obviously maintaining privacy where your expertise in asset planning, uh, asset protection made a significant impact on a client. Yes. Business? So I have a client, they're married, some clients are married and they have a blended family. So the husband came into the family with children from different relationships. He had inherited property and businesses. The wife came into the relationship with no children, but she had her own, you know, income and she had businesses as well. And then once they got married, they started to acquire assets together and just, you know, kind of skyrocketed what they were doing together. And now they have children together. So this is an example, and I love this one because almost every, you know, hypothetical I could come up with, this family has it. So they're successful. They have different businesses that are unrelated. So you have each business has its own little quirks that you have to plan for. And so what we did for them, we started out with a marital trust. And the marital trust is like the very roof. And then she had a trust for her assets that she came into the marriage with. And he had a trust for the assets that he came into the marriage with. Anything that they acquired during the marriage went into the marital trust. And then we were able to break down each of their businesses as well into different entities. And so the thing about this couple, there had been the threat of litigation prior to with a couple of the businesses. And right around the time that we were able to get everything into different types of structures for them, there was additional litigation. And I tell people, just because people sue you, that does not mean that you're, you know, immoral or that you're a bad person or have a bad company. Anyone can sue anything for anybody for any reason. But you just want to make sure that the way your structures are set up, that you appear to be judgment proof. And we were able to do this for each of their operating companies because initially they were operating and doing everything out of one company. 
Well, the structures that I like to start people out with for every operating company, we give you a three entity structure. We have your will or your state that owns everything up top. I mean, your trust or your will, basically, that's how you're going to dispose of it. We have a holding company and then we have your operating company. Now, your operating company may work in conjunction with an LLC for equipment or your intellectual property. You may have a separate company that does your staffing. So all your operating company basically does, it will take the liability in the event of a claim or a lawsuit. But there's really no equity there. And so we find ethical and legal ways to structure your business so that you do appear to be judgment proof. And we help you with the state minimum requirements for insurance. What does that do? Well, a lot of people think that I'm just going to get the most insurance. So if I get sued, I have insurance coverage. Well, no. With those increased amounts, you have large deductibles. So if I'm able to take you from $1,000 a month in insurance premiums to $500, that means you have an extra $500 a month to reinvest into your business for advertising for a reserve fund to make sure that you have a cushion, you know, if you have a downturn in your business. So we look at all of those things. And when I say we, I'm talking about your asset protection team, because I don't know all these things if I'm not talking to your insurance agent about your type of, about the type of coverage. I don't know that you have so much money going through one company that it will be better to have a separate company to lower your tax bracket. So now that we've lowered your tax bracket, and we're still paying our fair share of taxes, but you have extra money to work in your business. And so that's like my favorite example, because there were like maybe 12 or 13 different companies they had. And we got an opportunity to do planning that would really work for all of their children. And Agnes, look, there's a whole different conversation about how to plan for your children, because you don't always want to leave them the same thing. You may have a child that has special needs that may require medical care, you know, to the end of their life. And so what you do for them may be different than what you do for, for a child that's healthy or a child that has an aptitude to go on, get education and do some things for themselves. So I was able to do a lot of that with this couple. Ooh, I might just take that last little two minutes and send it off to somebody I know. <laughs> Uh, one more question just about this whole legal thing, and I, I think it's true in Canada, you can address what goes on in the States, is that if you've got a sole proprietorship, it can really easily just be part of your personal life. And so if you get sued on a business level, they can also take your personal home, your car, like your personal bank accounts, et cetera. Is, is oh my gosh, a sole proprietorship is a train wreck because you have there's there's not a barrier between you and any liability. You don't have a legal structure, so anything that you do, your social security number is attached to it, and so it's you know your credit is the business credit. If say for instance you're the best widget maker you really don't have a company to sell because you are the company versus if you would, you know, establish an LLC or a corporation or a different type of entity, you actually have something separate and apart from yourself that you can sell. And Agnes, one thing that we haven't even talked about was intellectual property and how you protect that. I tell people all the time, if I can have one asset, you know, in my state, it would be the logo for the Air Jordans. That is a billion dollar asset. That one thing is intellectual property. You can put it on stuff and charge people licensing fees. Michael Jordan sells tennis shoes, shirts, just everything with it. So as a sole proprietor, you don't necessarily have that because you don't have a business that's separate and apart from yourself. So yeah, I would not recommend that anybody be a sole proprietor. It takes a little bit more to establish a company, but in the end, the moat that you build around your assets is well worth it. You just triggered another question. Uh, we're going to be here all day because you keep on triggering questions, is goodwill. So, you know, you've got a small business. Uh, it does really, really well. You have such a great following of people who won't buy from anybody else except you. If you want to sell the business, I understand that you, you can put a price on goodwill, hopefully. But if you are just a sole proprietor or something uh, and you get hit by the proverbial bus, 
uh, like there's just no value to that. Can you, is there such a there thing? There absolutely as is. And I will, I'll give you a real world example. I had someone come to me because they were getting older. They had a restaurant, they were getting older and somebody wanted to buy the restaurant. Really, my client thought they wanted the real estate. Okay. But what that person wanted was the goodwill, the intellectual property and the real estate. So I asked people, are you selling the real estate or the business? Because, you know, he was getting ready to sell everything because he's thinking, well, I'm just retiring. They can just, you know, pay me X amount of dollars and I'll be done. I'm going to retire. But the buyer knew exactly what they were doing. They were getting the location, the phone number, the URL for the business. They were getting all that good stuff. And so in the end, we were able to negotiate a much higher price licensing for the name because this is like a, you know, like a, we call it a greasy spoon in the States. There's a little mom and pop place where people come to eat. And so um, we were able to negotiate some residuals for that man's family because, okay, you want the phone number. That's a cost. I don't have to give you my phone number because you're buying my building. You want to use, you know, the, my website. I own the URL. I'll, I'll license it to you. You want to keep the name so that when people, tourists come to town, they still come to visit because of the goodwill that I've established over 30 years making, you know, these blue plate dinners. You can keep all that, but it's going to cost you more than the value of the appraised real estate. And so we were able to work that out for that gentleman. And, and there's no tactful way of putting this, but you probably earned your fees well, right there, <laughs> you know. For in terms of well, you know what? It's so funny because this is the type of stuff that I love. Before I started coaching and doing asset protection, I practiced in several different areas of the law. And I just believe you have to do things to figure out what you're good at, what you like and what you don't like. And there were certain things that I just absolutely did not like. But when I started helping people with their estate planning and their business planning, I just I light up. That's my jam. That's what I enjoy doing. And so when people bring me stuff like this, I can do it. Now, on the other hand, if you ask me to draw a picture, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. I just can't. I'm not good at that. But this I love. So that's great. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. I got to remember that one. <laughs> Anything we haven't talked about that you want our listeners to think about? Just going back to the cost of inaction. You know, whatever your plan is, it does not have to be elaborate, but you need to start today. When is the best time to plant a tree? That would have been 10 years ago, but the next best time is today. So plant your tree today and just get started personally and professionally protecting your assets, your business, and your legacy. I, I love the plant a tree quote. I use it often. Where do we find you on the World Wide Web? So you can find me at um, shereeprince.com. And that'll give you some basic information about my monthly webinar. Also, if you would like to speak to me directly, you can find me on all socials at at Cherie Speaks. And so LinkedIn is probably the best way to catch me because I'm on there more often just answering questions. And, you know, if you decide that you need someone helping you with your asset protection team, I just recommend people start with my free monthly webinar. You come in, you can actually walk away with an outline for an asset protection blueprint. And if you decide you want to go further, you'll have an option at the end of the webinar. Great. And I've just flashed up your website here because I did notice that I think everybody knows that I pre-record when this goes live, it will be after the date currently on your website. So you just update that every month then for the next webinar. Yes. Usually it is the second Thursday of the month. I'm still a practicing attorney. So if I have court that Thursday, we'll just bump it to another Thursday, but it's generally on a on the second or, or um, third Thursday of the month. Great. Okay. And the link will be in the web or in the show notes anyways. You also have a podcast. Yes, it is the Play Big Faster podcast. And it's interesting because even though we've talked about all these great asset protection tips, we don't get very deep from my perspective. I don't talk about me at all on the podcast. I bring on other people who are serving entrepreneurs. And it is my goal to provide tips and tools and resources for people for about 20 to 25 minutes from the perspective of other people who serve entrepreneurs. So if you come and listen, um, you should walk away with something from every episode that will help you in your business in real time. Excellent. Okay. I just said the website link is in the show notes. All the links are on your page at our website. 
Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's Podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, talk to us there. If you have a business and there's something I didn't ask Cherie, ask it in the comments and I'll get you an answer. If you don't have a business, boy, I think we've probably prompted a few other thoughts that you should look into in your personal life. As usual, leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. Share this episode. First of all, estate planning is important for everyone. We can all tell stories of families that fell apart because of someone's neglect of the legal pieces. Many of us know someone with a business, or as I said at the beginning, who knows what we or our friends will be doing in the next few years. Cherie Prince, thank you so much for being my guest today and being so open about your own family's experiences and for giving us so much food for thought about getting our ducks in a row while we're still thinking clearly. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of the week.